Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. If my voice sounds fuzzier than usual, this is not because you and I have grown emotionally distant, dear listener. Our bond is as tight as ever. Rather, it's because the microphone I used to record everything crapped out right as I was recording this very intro. But fear not, the interview itself was conducted with the microphone before it committed microphone suicide, so you will soon be enjoying the sterling production values you have long come to associate with this podcast and this podcast alone. Anyway, for today's episode, I spoke with Keith Humphreys. Keith is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University and is an affiliated faculty member at Stanford Law School and the Stanford Neurosciences Institute. He served as a drug policy advisor in the George W. Bush and Barack Obama White Houses and currently advises many states and national governments on how scientific evidence can better inform policies regarding addiction and other psychiatric disorders. He's done all sorts of other impressive stuff too, but it would take me forever to list everything on his resume. On top of that, he happens to be a very good, kind, thoughtful guy, and I'm lucky I got to speak with him and that I've been able to lean on his expertise a bit in my own reporting over the years. As always, you can reach me with comments or questions or convoluted cartoonish death threats at singleminded at gmail.com, with the exception of comments about the microphone, which I have addressed, and uh, I'm going to get a new one. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, Single Minded, which is at jessesingle.substack.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as well, of course. I'm also very much in the market for ideas for future guests if you have any or, you know, any other feedback you have. Thank you as always, and I hope you enjoy my interview with Keith Humphreys. Well, Keith, thank you for coming on. Why don't we Why don't we start with a paper you co-authored that came out recently? the um, The headline was "Association between Medical Cannabis Laws and Opioid Overdose Mortality Has Reversed Over Time." And it was, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the study sort of jumped off a, a somewhat widely accepted claim about the correlation between medical mor- marijuana and opioid mortality. So, do you mind just sort of running down what you guys found and, and why people should care about it? Yeah. So. Uh, using data up to about 2010, a, a guy named uh, Marcus Backhuber, who, who's a terrific physician and someone I really like and admire, published a paper that got enormous attention. And what it showed is that in the states that initially uh, legalized medical cannabis, the opioid overdose rate, at least at that time, was lower than expected. And, you know, it was a correlational study, and it was also a state-level study. Lots of things correlate at the state level that don't necessarily correlate for individuals, but it was, you know, pretty provocative finding. And he was careful in the paper to say, you know, this doesn't prove that, you know, cannabis cures an opioid addiction or prevents an opioid addiction, but it got taken that way, um, mainly by the industry. You know, Weed Maps has, you know, billboards up saying that, you know, uh, medical cannabis will will reverse the opioid epidemic, but but also, you know, um, activists and also people who are desperate said, okay, this is the this is a solution. And so what we did is, you know, that that had data up to 2010, we took all, all the data since and see, did this really pan out over time as more and more states have legalized? And it turns out that it didn't. And in fact, the correlation in the end goes the other direction. The states with the medical cannabis have more opioid overdoses. 
And, you know, and that drew a lot of attention because it sort of surprised people. But it didn't surprise me. And, and to be clear, I'm definitely not saying that I don't think cannabis makes anybody have an opioid overdose. I just think these are two variables that correlate together but didn't have any causal link. And, you know, when you think about the states that legalized first, you know, they were Western states um, because Western states have ballot initiatives. They were wealthier. They were more progressive. They had better health care systems. They used incarceration less. They were different in lots and lots of ways than the states that didn't have medical cannabis early on. And I think that's why the opioid epidemic was a little less severe in those states. I don't think there was anything causal, um, but people just ran with that initial correlation way too far. So, so this is basically an example of um, of omitted variable bias, variable bias, where two things appear to be connected, but it's really a third, or a third and fourth and fifth and sixth variables that they both are are related to, right? And that that's what's driving whatever's going on. That's what you think is happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and the other thing is, of course, that you know there, there's a phenomenon called ecological fallacy, and that lots of things correlate in the aggregate that don't correlate. Uh, for individuals. So, you know, like, um, you know, people who are states where uh, more people are conservative are less happy when you look at well-being surveys and states are more liberal, but at an individual level, conservatives are happier than liberals. And and there's lots of findings, like there's no guarantee that just because it's an aggregate level, you know, in, you know, how California is different than Alabama is going to apply to an individual in California, an individual in Alabama. And people made that leap, uh, but there's really no reason to make that leap. And you know, if you look at at the individual level, I mean, actual people, um, medical cannabis and opioid use are positively correlated. People who use medical cannabis consume more uh, opioid painkillers. So um, that that was an additional level of mistake on top of the omitted variable problem that you talked about. I've written a little bit about how you need, as a journalist, you need to strike a balance where you don't want to pass along these scaremongering stories about marijuana, which have a done, you know, they've done a lot of damage over the years. And, Absolutely. and they've, yeah. they've, they've um, fueled overzealous drug policy, but we are in this new age now where, you know, the pot industry is an industry and they have activists and they have advocates and there are, there are, you know, progressive journalists who might not be as skeptical as they should be about miracle claims about marijuana or the idea that, you know, a, uh, a 13 year old smoking like a chimney, there's going to be no, negative effects. Well, do you have any advice for sort of not just journalists, but anyone trying to understand this issue honestly about how to proceed just because it's such a complicated terrain right now? It's really difficult and kind of dispiriting, honestly, that we can't seem to adopt a position between this is a demon weed and this is going to cure every disease on earth and can never harm anybody. Right. But that's the, the polarity we bounded back and forth on. Um, and, and part of the problem, as you as you you know mentioned, is the demonization and the in the sort of reaper madness stuff has caused a big gap in credibility. So now, when someone says, "Hey, you know, this new cannabis is 20% THC, not 5% THC," and people smoke it every single day or are having worse, you know, educational attainment and their incomes are lower, I go, "Oh, we've heard all that scaremongering before. We don't believe that." And, and so it's really tough to break through with evidence to say, you know, it's it's not as bad as heroin for sure. Uh, it doesn't have the violence associated with it, with alcohol and and, and uh, stimulants. But at the same time, you know, um, it is a drug. People do get addicted to it. Uh, people do suffer harm from it. 
Um, and you know that that's kind of I try to give that message uh, out, but very few people um, are in that spot. I think most people are either one of those poles or the other. At the moment, as you as you say, I think most people are sort of at the it cures everything and is harmless kind of stuff. Um, I think that will I think reality will beat that away actually in the next couple of years. What's your uh, just to put you on the spot? Like uh, you know, parents of a sixteen-year-old kid who. Pot has just sort of hit his social group and he's he's living somewhere where there's easy access. What do you think is the right level of sort of monitoring or, or you know, approaching that? Yeah, I, I, I would be as concerned about that as I would about alcohol these days. And I, I would not have said that when I started my career. So I, I, I've been at this about 30 years. I found cannabis a very uninteresting drug when I started my career because I, I was interested in drugs that really were messing up people's lives like alcohol and cocaine and so on. But marijuana back then was, you know, four, five, six percent THC, which is the principal intoxicant. Most people used it, used it occasionally. But now, you know, it's 20 percent THC. That's the average for, say, the Washington state market. And there's been a huge increase in people smoking it every single day, um, sometimes multiple times a day. So our historical memories, people my age, is a little out of date, you know. So, you know, I, it's like my, I don't have a 16-year-old, but let's say I did. My kids are a little younger than that. I'd be really concerned about it. I'd be as concerned about it as if I caught them with, uh, you know, a bottle of vodka. Yeah, I, uh, I may have had a, a recent experience with um, the new sort of more more potent stuff where I was just sort of like surprised because uh, growing up, especially in Massachusetts, I was never I was never that into it. But it's just it, it is very clear the nature of what you're smoking or vaping when you smoke or vape, vape is changing. And it's you know, it's getting more potent. And I just think, you know, it's something people should be aware of and, and be able to talk about without being ridiculed for demon weed scaremongering. Yeah, I mean, th there was a, a, a narrative around um, drug law called the Iron Law of Prohibition, and what it, you know, what it said was that the only reason drugs are potent is because um, is is because uh, they are illegal, and in and and that makes you know criminals then make it more potent. But the but the fact that this has gone the opposite way as it's become illegal, it's become more potent. And the reason for that is whether a drug's legal or illegal, potency is a big advantage to sellers. It's more addictive, it packs more per punch, it's easier to move from place to place. And unless you put in strong regulations to stop potency um, from going up, you know, you're gonna have it in the legal market and that's what we have. And so it's really almost a qualitatively different drug than what a lot of people uh, would have smoked you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Partly because it's something I haven't read enough about. I, I have so much trouble grasping the opioid epidemic to just fully mm -hmm. understanding the scale of what's going on or what could possibly be done to slow it down and, and fix it. What do you think people should know about it that they don't? Or, or how would you alter the national conversation if you could? Well, those are really good questions. Um, you know, we have had, there certainly are things that result in more loss of life. I mean, tobacco results in far more loss of life each year, but that's accrued over decades, you know, as people are dying because they smoked, you know, for 20 years or whatever. In terms of acute deaths, things are, you know, killing people quickly, nothing in my lifetime has been this deadly. Uh, this is more deadly than AIDS. The, the only thing that comes close is, you know, 60 years ago, there was a, what was called the Asiatic flu, but that, you know, that killed 
almost as many people in the country it was smaller. So that means most Americans have not had an experience of this level of, of death and destruction uh, from, from a health problem. An additional thing that's different is that this is so spread out across social classes, parts of the country, different racial and ethnic groups. You know, the methamphetamine uh, outbreaks were um, heavily rural, heavily white. Crack cocaine had a very strong presence in cities. African-Americans were overrepresented. Heroin outbreaks, 60s, 70s, also were pretty urban. This thing is everywhere. It's in rural areas, it's in urban areas, it's in urban areas. It's affecting whites, it's affecting blacks, it's affecting old people, young people, rich, poor, and so on. So it's, it's remarkably um, pervasive to the point that it's pretty hard if you go into a you know, room of 100 people and you just say, you know, raise your hand if you know a family that has been touched by this or your own family has touched this, most people raise their hands. That was never really true of previous drug epidemic. So that, that itself is kind of astonishing how, how destructive it's been. And if you, if you were uh, the emperor of the United States, what, what policies would you enact to start to try to stem the tide? Well, I spent a lot of time on that, and I, I, I worked with the House and Senate a lot in the big opioid bill that they passed, and there were a lot of smart things in there, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, mainstreaming the care of addictive disorders into healthcare. So things like, you know, Medicaid should fully cover it, Medicare should fully cover it, just like anything else, it should cover it like it covers heart disease or cancer. Addiction is, a, in my opinion, a health problem. It needs to be funded as such. Um, I would not put people, you know, running, circling people in and around with incarceration is very bad uh, for uh, possession of opioids because what happens is, contrary to stereotype, it's actually hard to get opioids in prison. You don't get them, your tolerance goes down, then you go out, and when you use your usual dose, you, you have a fatal overdose. That's something we need to, to change. We need to be treating people coming in and out of the criminal justice system. I just came back from Rhode Island. They've got a terrific program where they're putting people in buprenorphine while they're in incarceration. And then they're not dope sick all through their incarceration. They're able to you know, function much better. And then they, they transition out. They have treatment. You know, the first moment they get out, their death rate has gone down. It's just really, really pretty terrific. But the, the number one thing is we need to spend a lot more money um, than we have been on this. And the only the only proposal I've seen that really grasped that metal is the uh, uh, Elijah Cummings and uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, proposal, which is, I think, $100, $100 billion over 10 years or something like that. But, you know, th that's the only proposal I've seen in Washington where people really thinking at the level you need to think. Most of what has been done is, you know, a billion here, a billion there, a three-year grant program, a two-year grant program. And that's just not grasping the size of this. I mean, this is not going to go away with um, that kind of nibbling at the edges. Um, this is a you know hundreds of billions of dollar problem, and if I were king, I would be spending that level of funding, like we spend on AIDS, to turn this around. It seems like one of those situations where, just in terms of the amount of of carnage out there being caused, like in theory, spending a dollar today could. This is just the sort of pure, almost conservative economic argument. Not even thinking about yeah. the suffering, but you would think spending a dollar today could save us five or ten dollars down the line potentially, right? Absolutely. I mean, when I think of thing, I mean, there was a study recently showing American dentist per capita opioid prescribing rate is seventy times that of British dentist. And and it's like you know the money it would take to reeducate American dentists 
to just, you know, obviously you need to use opioids, but to just get to like a sane level of prescribing, whatever that costs, the education, the outreach, sending a, a, you know, a detailer to every one of their offices and saying, look, please only use this, you know, when it's needed. You know, even if only one-tenth of those people are going to have a problem or one one-hundredth of those, those people are going to have a problem, you would save enormously. I mean, every averted case of, of addiction is an enormous benefit to that person, to their family, but to the community, because we all end up um, paying for the externalities of addiction. So it's one, it's one of those issues that um, even if you are, you know, kind of stone-hearted and you think, you know, uh, I don't. I don't have to care what happens to other people. Even rational self-interest would say, you know, you end up being affected by this anyway. Um, so you should go ahead and and uh, uh, you know and pony up and and have a healthcare system take care of these folks. So you worked for both the the Bush and Obama White Houses, right? I I served on a, uh, a, a White House commission, and I was appointed for that by President George W. Bush. So so for that, I'm you know I'm still out here. So, but whereas in the Obama thing, I actually was working in the White House 24-7 uh, for a year. So, yeah, I worked on both of them, but my role in the Obama administration was a lot more substantial. And, and uh, when we were trying to figure out to, how to structure this interview, you mentioned that um, you think there's a case to be made that the Obama administration doesn't quite get the credit it deserves on, on drug policy? Yeah, um, I, I don't think people realize that the Affordable Care Act has been a hugely important thing for the care of addiction in the United States. You know, and, and I can understand that. I mean, you know, it's, it's something I know because I, I work in that area, but the fact that um, it defined the care of addiction as an essential healthcare benefit, like maternal and child health, like cancer, like heart disease. And so to say, you know, if you wanna sell an insurance plan on any of those state exchanges, you have to cover addiction. It is core to health. I never thought I would see that in my career. The fact that the Medicaid expansion, again, you can take this money, throw it up on paper, but you have to take care of addiction. That was those remarkable things that I, I can almost, you know, not believe they passed, but they did. That was hugely important. The resources that came with that are hugely important. I'm from West Virginia. Most of the opioid addiction treatment in West Virginia is being paid for by that Medicaid expansion. That's really important. The other thing is on the, you know, the enforcement side, definitely think more could have been done. But, you know, I think Obama's the first president since Jimmy Carter, who left office with fewer people in the federal prison system than he started with. You know, he did, you know, make some progress on the crack cocaine uh, disparity. He commuted a lot of sentences. I just think he set the right uh, notes. There's only so much you can do as a president because most are prisons at the state level. But, um, you know, on that, I think also it's not appreciated. That was, that, those were the right policy vibes. It was really moving things more in a public health direction. Um, unfortunately, now we, we're going to move away from that again. But anyway, I think that was something I'm proud of being a part of that happening in, uh, in Washington. I'm curious what it must have been like for you to watch all these states like say no to the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, you know, it, it's really painful uh, to me. I mean, um, I was proud of my own state and was wise enough to do it. But when I read, I was just reading recently an article about Tennessee and their talk, and it was on rural hospitals closing and lack of rural physicians and lack of rural health care. And I just thought, you know, you turned down the Medicaid expansion. You, you know, that was such a, 
incredibly self-destructive thing to do. And you did that for, you know, political reasons. You didn't want to, you know, you want to show you were independent of the Obama administration or, or, or you wanted to make clear that, you know, you don't think people deserve health insurance or whatever, and you just shot yourself in the foot. So as a, you know, I, I, I'm pained by that uh, emotionally as a human being. I'm pained by it as a public health professional. I mean, you know, we, we, we made it available and then people said no anyway. And that is just really, it's tough to take. Yeah, I think there's this persistent human tendency, like a question like whether or not a state accepts Medicaid expansion is presented often in terms of, of numbers and sometimes big numbers. But then you you think about what those numbers mean for individual stories and an individual's ability to, for example, get opioid treatment. It's just staggering to think about the amount of suffering associated with that number. Yeah, it's almost more than we can appreciate. Um, you know, and, and, you know, for, you know, again, I just think because I'm, I'm, I do a lot of work with my home state and we've been very hard hit by opioid addiction. And the fact that, you know, the Medicaid is paying for more treatment for people than, than anything else. And I know I you know, interact with those, those folks and think like, you know, they would just be, you know, dead a lot of them, literally. I mean, I'm not, not exaggerating. They would have no access to care no decent treatment they'd be out you know living in a rural area and you know they would eventually show up dead from an opioid overdose and you know a lot of those and also point a lot of those people are parents you know they have kids who are affected whether they're suffering with addiction or whether they 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 die prematurely so this you know the, the sadness just mounts on itself um and uh it, that just makes it all the more maddening that some places decided for political reasons not to um, do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of of playing my role of the uh, confused liberal guy too closely, <laughs> I, I it 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 is a little bit baffling because I know there's some confusion over government services, and there are probably some people on Medicaid who don't really understand they're on Medicaid. But it seems like a lot of people are supporting, for example, governors or state reps or whatever whose policy preference is to make sure they don't have health care. How do you explain the Medicaid backlash, or, or can you really? You know, there's so many contradictions in how people view uh, social welfare programs. I mean, there's people who um, get insurance through their work and think, I earned this, and don't realize that the federal government is subsidizing it by not taxing it. Um, people, there's people, uh, old people on Social Security who are sick of all the layabouts, getting government checks when the average Social Security recipient has spent everything they've saved in the first four years, and the rest of the time they are basically recipients of social welfare. There's a lot of that in, in, in America, of not wanting to think of oneself that way, that then leads you to think, I don't have a stake in these programs. You know, you can go ahead and cut them because there's other people are welfare, a benefit from social welfare programs, not me. But in fact, huge numbers of people do. And then race centers into it quite a bit. I mean, you know, there's, you know, depending on the state, you know, there is this sense of, well, you know, if I'd like to have that, but if me getting it means that one of these undeserving minorities gets it, then, uh, then I don't want to do it. And that's, you know, um, you know, it's pretty well found thing about racism. Yes, it's incredibly destructive to the target group, but it can also sometimes lead the person practicing it to do things that damage themselves just for the sake of acting out their prejudice. Yeah, a lot of the sort of, of pop psychologizing about who deserves what and these sort of moral intuitions, like you think about, um, you know, think about two Americans. One is a rural corn farmer who works 12 hour days and the other is a 
single woman in a city who works 12 hour days. And the idea that the, the corn farmer who's probably receiving heavy subsidies from the government, he deserves those subsidies, whereas the mom doesn't deserve Medicaid. It's just it's very hard to explain any of this coherently. So I think I'm very sympathetic to the idea, like you're saying, it just it just comes down to these sort of intuitions that often often either don't come from anywhere or come from a place of, of prejudice or ignorance. Yeah, no, it's really true. It's, it's funny. I, I think about this in baseball. Um, you know, if you if you follow baseball, you know, left handers, you know, let, we have a, an old, you know, going back thousands of years that the left hand is it actually literally sinister in Latin. Right. They're evil. And, and, and when well, left handed pitchers are referred to as crafty and, and, and wily and right handed pitchers very commonly will say big farm kid. Right. You know, it's just like what could be what could be more wholesome than that? He's a right-hander, big farm kid, you know, because God knows, you know, all farmers are better than the rest of us. It's just really, it's really amazing that we we all live in these uh, in cultural, uh, really powerful cultural narratives shape us whether we want them to or not. Well, as a as a southpaw myself, who was told at a tender age that I couldn't play most infield positions because lefties can't do that, I'm glad you're uh, <laughs> you're addressing the sheer scope of anti-lefty bias in the U.S. Well, you do. You you, I, you can at least feel, I think, good about the fact that your recent presidential run is quite impressive. You know, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, you had uh, uh, you know Obama was a lefty, and uh, Reagan was ambidextrous, and I think George H. W. Bush was a lefty too. So, you guys are taking over. You're scared. You're scaring me. I'm sick of the man keeping me down. Me and the other right-handers. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, it's always a cabal of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, as an academic who's who's directly involved in public policy and, you know, getting invited to talk on the Hill and used to work in the White House, how does the election of someone like Trump, who, um, I mean, I don't need to phrase it that diplomatically, you know, when he's elected, he's not a serious policy thinker and he's probably not going to appoint serious policy thinkers. How does that affect your view of sort of what you can accomplish during his his term or terms? Well, um, I am, you know, I, I suppose like you, I, 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 I watch you on Twitter and I, I admire the way you continue to try in the face of all evidence uh, to the contrary that there's any hope of anything happening. And, and I, I try to be cut from that cloth too. I, I work with everybody who shows an interest, doesn't matter what party they're in. Uh, doesn't matter what other issues we we agree or disagree on, and sometimes you know I felt like in the the big opioid bill that Congress passed, I I was able to be helpful and able to persuade some people of things, but Trump at his at his core I see is fundamentally just unpersuadable. I mean I think uh, I'm not surprised he won. I, I was one of a few people in my circle who thought that he might win, but I just judge him at the core that there's really nothing there. It's kind of like, you know, the banality of evil or whatever. So I just, you know, and the people around them, the same thing are just, you know, empty of policy. They don't care about policy, they don't understand their policy, and they don't want to understand policy. So I'm, I'm pretty cynical about um, the likelihood that this White House will deliver something. Um, occasionally, some people, he's appointed me. I, I thought Scott Gottlieb did a really good job at the FDA. Uh, he's a very substantive person. I think there's some smart people at, at, at Health and Human Services. There's clearly some smart people in the Congress. But in terms of the White House, um, you know, I don't call them and they don't call me. 
just to be clear to my listeners, I, I appreciate that you find me hopeful on Twitter, but in terms of my own bra- branding purposes, I'm a, a desiccated shell of a man who has given up <laughs> all hope on everything. Uh, again, that's important to my brand. So, okay. uh, has anything? Is it too early, or has anything popped out of the uh, Democratic primaries on this subject that that strikes you as promising or worth paying attention to? Someone pointed out a friend of mine, uh, journal, another journalist uh, friend of mine, pointed out to me today that it's weird that the Democratic debates haven't touched the opioid ep- epidemic yet, um, because that's clearly an issue that touches all the places that Democrats need to win. Um, and also, it's weird because Senator Warren has a coherent proposal out there. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't come up more yet, um, but I really hope that it will, because um, you know it, it's hugely, hugely important. And we'll just have to see, um, you know, who jumps in. May well be Warren, but also there's other people who could surprise us. Um, you know, maybe you know Cory Booker uh, or uh, Kamala Harris, who are you know, interested more in the this criminal justice side, will be the ones who kind of move move the debate on this. But at the moment, no one seems to have have jumped out uh, and uh, you know staked out a position on that. So um, you know, I, I remain optimistic. There's just such a, a profound difference between having in the White House someone who has some sign of intellectual life and curiosity versus uh, someone who doesn't. It's just, uh, it's, I don't know, it's shocking to think about what it's like to have someone running the show who just has zero interest in the world or what makes people tick or what makes policy work. Not not to put you in the incredibly controversial position of criticizing Donald Trump, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it really is. I mean, and, and it's, this has not been the case in my lifetime. You know, I, I, I as I mentioned, I stir, I suspect a lot of your listeners don't don't like George W. Bush. Um, but I was proud to serve in that commission. And he, you know, was a smart person, is a smart person. And he had smart people around him. And he actually cared about addiction because for family reasons, he said, so I'm not giving anything away. Um, and, you know, whether, in, you know, the politics may be different than what your, your average listener would care about, but you, you can question the intelligence of the people who work for them. There were a lot of thoughtful people there. And uh, now it's really like a vacuum. I mean, you know, because it, because I, I look, when I look at Trump, what I see is, what I think about as a mental health professional, I just see that, you know, Trump, for Trump, there is nothing but Trump. And, and that's the kind of, um, to me, very sad world he lives in that is now sad for all of us because he's the president of the United States. But I, do, I just don't think there's anything anything there. I don't think he's capable of showing interest in other people and certainly not in policy. So you're not going to have that. And, and what happens over time when somebody like that is in office, and I've seen this in other countries, I've done work in you know developing countries and countries with more autocratic systems is, over time, they, they, the leaders in those situations crew other people whose sole goal becomes flattering that person. And that's what they're there for. And they become less and less substantive over time. The substantive people leave. Uh, and, we're, and so each, you know, as bad as it's been, I think every month it gets worse uh, in terms of just the, the absence of anyone who's really interested in doing anything in the, in the uh, Trump administration. Does addiction policy sort of carried out at the level you do it and and research, do you guys ever get some of these sort of spats where researchers and policymakers and um, social justice advocates are on different sides and end up coming to blows? Or does that not really happen in your area? No, it does happen because, you know, 
I guess uh, you know, drug legalization is a really good example where you see some of that because you have kind of weird conjunctions that um, very, very rich people tend to favor uh, drug legalization because they made their money in corporate uh, the world and they see corporations as good. And then you also have very left-wing kind of social justice people would say, yeah, drug legalization is good. So that splits them. Um, you know, it, it, it creates, creates uh, you know, tensions and dynamics. Academics are generally, well, they're more, it depends on the field, but overall they're more left-wing than the average people. So a lot of them are on that social justice side. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's a lot of fights around that from people who on the you know one hand you might have people say look at the tobacco industry they've been awful they their product kills millions of people every year how can you trust corporations to have even more drugs to sell and then social justice people you know coming back saying well how can you trust the government to be running a prohibition regime because they're going to just throw a lot of people in prison that's been a long and bitter argument pretty much my whole career uh, inside academia and also outside it and how how have you Figure out uh, a way to navigate it. Yeah, well, first off, I, I, it's funny. I, I just gave, I was just in Norway and I gave a talk about cannabis legalization for like an hour. And everyone was so nice afterwards. They said, You were the only person who's ever spoken about this who didn't tell us how to vote. Um, what you did was you said, If you do this, there's this consequence. If you do that, there's this consequence. That, that could, and I, so I do a lot of that. I do a lot of, I, I figure like there's so many people pitching opinions out there that mine on top of it doesn't help much and who cares what I think anyway, really. I mean, so I, I try to do a lot of like telling people what the evidence is. You know, if you legalize a drug, for example, the price will collapse. When, like any other thing, when the price goes way down, people use it a lot more. There's going to be advertising unless you, you know, do a lot to stop advertising. If that bothers you, you should get used to it. Uh, all those kinds of things. I also try to point out that there's a lot more freedom than people realize in the policy space. So a lot of people say, we have to have corporations sell heroin and cocaine because there's people in prison. But in fact, that is nonsensical. You could just say, you know, as we did in California, I endorsed it. You just can't give someone a felony for drug possession. You can't. And you know, we did that. It passed by valid initiative with a very big margin. We didn't have to create, uh, we'd have to give Marlboro, you know, a cocaine division for that to happen. We just decided we're not going to use our law enforcement that way. And, you know, helping people understand that, that in fact, you have a lot of choices out there um, beyond just surrendering drugs to, you know, multinational corporations and hoping they behave themselves, which, I, which is, you know, a pretty risky prospect, in my opinion. Yeah, when I was in um, public policy school, you know, my classmates were mostly sort of future Hill staffers and NGO workers and stuff, and they... Um, they very deliberately took us through this exercise of like, okay, here are the possibilities. You would literally make a chart in this nerdy way. Here's who will benefit from it. Here's who will be harmed. Here's who will politically support it. Here's who won't. And I think there's something as nerdy and technocratic as it is. Uh, there's something of a lost art to that. Cause I feel like these days there's maybe, it sometimes feels like there's less of an appetite for that careful deconstruction. Like here are our options. Here are their likely outcomes. I think, um, maybe people want, it feels almost like there's more of an appetite for easy answers than there used to be, although I could be just, this could be a present bias thing. Well, I, I think certainly some of our ways of communicating definitely uh, favor that. And Twitter is, I think, Instagram, those kinds of things where they're short and you get massive reinforcement for being simplistic and, and, and saying uncomplicated things. 
And I, I know people who seem who are completely sane and normal, and they get on those media and they turn nuts, as far as I can tell. But I'll tell you, you're interested in psychology. I don't know if you know Paul Slovic's work about affective simplicity. I think it's really, really important. And I'll, I'll explain it or give an example of the kind of study he does. So you get like 100 people in a room and you say, you know, the car company is about to roll out a new car. It's fun to drive, but we have some safety concerns. And you present both those things. Then you randomly divide them into two groups. In the first group, you say, we really understated the safety concerns. This thing can flip over and crash. The seatbelts don't work that well, blah, 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 blah. And then you ask that group, not how safe it is. You say, how fun is it to drive? And they say, it's not fun. Right. It's just an unsafe, no fun car. The other group, you say, we said it was sort of fun to drive. It's incredibly fun. It handles well. It's beautiful. It's, the seats feel great. It's got power. You're gonna, it's, it's hot. It's sexy. It's, it's awesome. Now tell us, what about these safety concerns? And they say, nah, those are overstated. And, and it's interesting, they weren't told anything about the safety concerns. They've just decided this either belongs in the totally good or totally bad. Right. And I'm not going to screen up. And so that effect is something seems to be hardwired and you, and you have to actively fight and train against it in good public policy schools and good public policy analysts will do that and talk to people about trade-offs and talk to people about, yeah, you know, uh, yes, it's good in these ways, but it's bad in those ways. And most people find that a bit aversive instinctively. They don't want to hear that. Um, even when you are, you know, like I, I support universal uh, health insurance. I would never have access to a doctor. But, you know, I, if I say on Twitter, for example, you know, you realize, of course, if we cut healthcare spending by a trillion dollars with universal health insurance. Some people will lose their jobs. Some hospitals will close. I mean, how can it not? If you take out a trillion dollars and get all these people, no, that's not true. You know, right. we'll, we'll have just as much and even more. And just like, well, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense, but it's, it's that I want an effective, it makes me feel good to say there's no cost to this at all. It's a hundred percent benefits, you know, all the way down. And um, that's the enemy of good policies, but that's what often happens in politics. Yeah, well, it's, it's a similar thing with the politics of healthcare, where there are policies I support, but I think if you watched the knockdown, dragout brawl over Obamacare, which is like, you know, a centrist policy originally created by a center-right think tank, that should tell you some things about the politics of anything that could, for example, force people to switch doctors. And I found... Anyone who points out these eminently reasonable cautions, even people who are in favor of it, are sort of accused of of secretly being conservative or secretly being against it. And, and like you're saying, that's that's the enemy. I think not just of good policy, but of good politics. Yeah, and and, and I, I I really hate something I've noticed now about op-eds. If you take a if you read them, a huge number now now have like a paragraph where they say, and before anyone accuses me of being a liberal, I'd like to make it clear that I executed 100 criminals myself as governor, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Or there's one thing, and before someone says I'm a right-wing person, you know, I, I you know, am a socialist uh, from years ago. And it really bugs me that people now have to declare any time they present any data that makes things more complicated, I'm in the tribe. Right. You know, because... God forbid we just evaluated them based on what they said. Um, they know they already anticipating what was going to happen is, oh, he, he, you know, he or she gave a point of data that conflicted with conservative policy, ergo they're a left winger or the other way around, you know, right? 
And I really, I really hate that as a as, as someone who tries to be a scientist, but also as a teacher, you know, um, who, who tries to help students think more com complexly. The idea that um, all we're ever going to do is just declare tribal allegiance and 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 bow down to our various religions—that seems to me like you know, a, a, that's what life was like a thousand years ago, and I, I'm not nostalgic about it. I'm uh, I'm right there with you. Do Do you mind if we take a very quick break, and then I've got just a few more questions for you? No, that's fine. Until I got high <laughs> I was gonna get up and find the broom But then I got high uh. My room is still messed up And I know why Why, man? Yeah, cause I got high Because I got high Because I got high Okay, and we're uh, back with Keith Humphrey So uh, let's talk Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit And I'll, um, I'll try to keep the backstory here brief but when i was at new york magazine i there's an article in the atlantic basically criticizing aa pretty heavily and i think it leveled some familiar complaints that the program has these sort of weird supernatural components and is very focused on abstinence and you know i looked into the research including some important research you've done and it, it turns out that aa appears to work but maybe not for exactly the reasons you would think it would work do you think that's a, a fair assessment yeah, I mean, it. I, for, for sake, when I first heard about AA, when I started my career in addiction, I thought it sounded stupid. And no offense to people who are in it, but you know, when you hear about you know, you what fake it till you make it, one day at a time, these slogans, people sitting around talking about spirituality, you know, and and if you believe it's an illness, you think, well, how could this possibly matter? It, sound, it sounded really, you know, kind of hokey and folky and all. So I, I get that a lot of people's first take on it is that doesn't sound very credible to me. But, you know, it's been a victory for science over the last 30 years or so that a huge number of people have gone beyond that initial reaction and really studied it quite carefully. And it is, in fact, effective. I mean, my, my initial prejudiced reaction to it was wrong. And it's strange how, for reasons I don't fully understand in the, that Atlantic article you mentioned, really, exemplify that, it's become sort of the posh view to say that AA doesn't work. Um, and um, But it, it really does. I mean, we have as good as evidence of that as any of the kind of stuff I was trained to do. Um, it, it, and again, not necessarily maybe the way people think it works, but if we look at studies where people are compared to that and other things, they, they drink less, they have better lives, they're less depressed, I mean, really good things. Um, and we might add, too, at no cost to the taxpayer. So for me, it's very hard to feel anything but grateful that it exists. And I don't quite understand how it became the posh perspective uh, to be anti-AA. And, and if, if I have this right, the basic theory of how it works is that, well, first of all, a lot of our lives in general are affected by our social networks. We're social animals. Absolutely. AA, whether or not you believe in the higher power stuff or all the, the steps, the fact is it, it puts your butt in a seat in a community of other like-minded people trying to not let alcohol destroy their lives. And so the basic theory is just having those social connections can keep you on the right track in a powerful way, right? And, and yes, and we have overwhelming evidence that's the case for a zillion different health behaviors. I mean, when I came to California, you know, from the Midwest, 
and I would go out at lunchtime at the hospital with all these people like wearing gym shorts and stretching and like, who, what is this weird call? And like, we're, we're going jogging. We're going to play tennis. We're going to. And so I started to do it because all my colleagues and friends were doing it and I lost weight and I got more healthy and all that kind of thing. That's a very common story almost everybody has. If you want to make a health behavior change, hang out with other people who are doing the same thing. Well, that certainly applies to alcohol as well. Um, you know, other people doing it or they're farther down the road and they can give you advice about how they did it. And of course that stuff's going to matter. And, you know, AA, the, the books and stuff say it's all a spiritual, spiritual stuff and higher power is central to it. But surveys of the members show when you ask them what is the most important thing about the group, the most common answer is the fellowship. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very, to me just extremely plausible that that would affect how people respond to drinking problems like they do any other type of health problem. But it's interesting because, like, you can see a parallel there with, um, with actual organized religion, where if you asked a bunch of people who are regular church or synagogue or mosque yeah. attendees, you know, some of them would have this direct connection to God or whatever, but a lot of them are just like, this is my community. These are the people I rely on. That is exactly the case. So I grew up in the Presbyterian church and, you know, I, I can remember if so we have the service and, you know, some people are there to hear the word of God and to pray and all that. And then afterwards we issue out into the outside area and there would be like, you know, 500 little old ladies like having tea and, and cookies and everything. And this was their thing. You know, and I, you know, I don't, I have no idea what the religious was, but I know they were deeply connected to that place. It gave them a place to go every week. People care about them. How you doing? Um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of more sort of socially isolated lives, and that I, I suspect brought meaning and joy, and also probably better health into their lives. Um, and you know, I don't, I, I suspect some of them weren't really that religious fundamentally, but they were part of a community. And you see that in AA. Some people do get that spiritual stuff and, and that you know, pulls them out of depression and reorients their lives, and that's awesome. Um, but, but a lot of people, it's kind of generic stuff that any of us might experience exactly as you said. So hypothetically, you, could, you would predict that even if you tweak the AA programming to you know, make it more secular, to snip out controversial elements, as long as the basic structure of giving people a place to go and a social network to embed themselves in, you'd expect similarly strong results, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you, in fact, that's been done. I mean, you know, there's life-ring secular sobriety, there's there's um, uh, smart recovery. There are other groups that do that. There are also, you know, <clears throat> there's a study of AA in Sweden, I find very interesting because it's a very secular country. And they asked everybody in the AA in Sweden, you know, the question, I believe there's a God and I have no doubt about that. And like 85% of them said, I, I disagree, I'm, I'm an atheist. And yet they're still in AA. And so you can have it, there, there are people within AA who run a very non-spiritual kind of AA because it's, you know, everybody can tailor it the way they want it. So, um, you know, the, those things, I think those, I don't want to dismiss that spiritual stuff because I know it's intensely meaningful to some people. But a lot of it is generic stuff that we could adapt and and, you know, there is not, more generally, you know, there's not a chronic disease you can name that doesn't have a self-help community associated around it. And that's got to tell you something. No one's making people do that. And yet people who have Gaucher's disease, like talking to other people who have Gaucher's disease, people with diabetics often benefit enormously from knowing someone else who's managing diabetes. People with cancer, you know, often 
you know, incredibly meaningful things like sit in a group of their cancer patients, talk through what they're going through, how they're feeling, how's this doctor, how's that doctor. And it, it's, you know, we take comfort in that and that shared experience. And why would, why should we be surprised that also people who have an alcohol problem would take that same comfort? Yeah, I think what I find so compelling about the AA example is I, I could see myself either as, you know, a health consumer or in my role as a science writer, totally, you know, bashing it because it sounds unscientific. It it sounds too religious. But I guess at the end of the day, like, we don't always have a great idea of what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes the data can surprise us, which is all the more reason to generate good data, right? Right. And, and to cultivate the attitude of being able to be surprised. Uh, you know, it, it, and it, you know, it's when, when I, I think my initial, you could say my initial attitudes to A, you could criticize them in lots of ways. Part of you could say I'm just being a lousy scientist because I was assuming I knew something that I had no data to substantiate. Um, and, you know, it, to, to be a good scholar is to say, you know, I don't know. I mean, let, show, show me the evidence. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad, I guess I, I was exposed to that evidence before I'd become so calcified I couldn't absorb it. Um, but yeah, we should be able to do that. And, and, you know, religion more generally, religious people are healthier than non-religious people. I mean, outside of time, they live longer, uh, they're more fulfilled. Um, there's lots of health benefits to religion. That may not be a popular message in a secular academic community, but that is, that is the truth. Um, and that's worth understanding and being open to see why is, why is that the case and what parts of that are specific to religion and what parts are adaptable that anybody could use, whether they were religious or not. Well, it's hard for me to be surprised because I already have the correct views about everything. So, well, well that's, I've, I, um, and, and I've always admired that about you as well as the humility you have that really just brings it all together. Nobody has the humility or the modesty I have. I <laughs> that you're starting to sound presidential there. Exactly. Uh, okay, so you have a uh, pretty intimidating sort of background, just the sheer amount of stuff you've done. And one of the things that jumped off your bio page at me is, is you helped rebuild Iraq's psychiatric system, yes? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, I volunteered to do that after the war. I should be clear, I didn't have children then. So I, I, when I, I, that having children changed my view about how sensible it is to do things that might end up with me getting killed, you know? So, so, so but so this is a different time. I mean, when I was a young man, it's like, if the phone rang and it was trouble, I always hoped it was for me, right? So, so I did, uh, you know, it's like I did work in the Lower East Side of Detroit and I had the crack cocaine epidemic and I did this kind of work in the Middle East. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it Iraq, uh, you know, actually had a good healthcare system at, at, in the 1970s, uh, you know, for a middle income country. And uh, things had just utterly deteriorated under, you know, Saddam used um, healthcare kind of, you know, to, if you were in the group, you know, in the, his little circle, you got good healthcare, but he deprived all the people, he, you know, like the Kurds, he deprived them of decent healthcare. And then there was war and then there were sanctions and all that. So it really just collapsed and, and uh, it was very tragic um, because they had, they had a good system, including a lot of good things for psychiatric care. And, um, you know, the, the, Agency in Washington called SAMHSA, which had some mental health and substance use, asked if people would be willing to volunteer to go try to help. And I didn't speak Arabic, and I'm no expert on Iraq, but I wanted to be helpful. And I, I went and did that, and I have to say it's one of the most meaningful experiences of my whole life. Um, I, 
even though you know Iraq has continued to have all the suffering and uh, and all that, but you know the people I met, the connections I made, you know, just absolute um, intimate experiences with other people who are very dear to me. And I also have to say I don't think I have whined about anything ever since. I mean, I, I remember the first meeting we had. We were going to meet in Baghdad, and then but then there was this kidnapping. Uh, spree uh, trying to kidnap physicians and, and and so they were afraid to put everyone together so we met in um we went across syria desert met in jordan and the first day there's like 80 people there and you know being iraqis they we don't start with the program we start with everybody introducing himself and telling a story and they went around the room and each person said you know and, and this doctor was actually said Hi, you know, uh, my name is Ahmed. I was a doctor. I wanted, I, I trained at Baghdad University and I became a physician. But then I got drafted into the Iran Iraq War, so I wasn't able to practice. I got gassed on the front and I almost died. I recovered after two or three years. I was able to practice again. But then I, I made a negative remark about Saddam to one of my patients who ratted me out and I, I was sent to Abu Ghraib prison where I was tortured for a year. And I'm really happy to be here today to help my country. That's crazy. Right. And then over me, I'm like, what am I going to say? Like, I ordered the extended cable package and there wasn't ESPN. <laughs> what the hell? You know, just like, I just like, what can I say, man? It's just like, you know, and, and, and this guy's upbeat. He's happy, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's kind of a banal insight to, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, consider things go as we were. But I intimately, emotionally saw just how horribly brutal life can be. And it really, you know, it just, it, it, in a good way, you know, I just think it helped me grow up more to realize how incredibly lucky I think anybody is that they can like drink the water and know that it's clean and go, you know, sit in a cafe and not worry about a bomb going off and people aren't shooting each other in the street and that, you know, whatever the defects of government, at least it's, you know, it's not, um, it's an absolute, you know, autocratic, you know, torturing nightmare and all that kind of stuff. And um, I just, it, it filled me with a lot of gratitude that I still carry with me. And I, I really, you know, it's, it sounds very kumbaya, but I, you know, just felt, still feel extraordinary, um, extraordinarily lucky. And, no, I, I don't think it's kumbaya or banal because I, I, I see around me a lot of people forgetting how fragile this thing we've built this thing this sort of uh i don't know developed world has built or much of it has built like it's really fragile and it, it doesn't mean that everyone in u.s is having a great time and there's a lot of hardship but just like you're saying the basic stuff access to water walking around without someone robbing you like all the stuff that makes life just you know fundamentally decently pleasant it really can just sort of I mean, Iraq's a good example, and there's a lot of Middle Eastern countries that had solid middle classes, a lot of doctors, a lot of lawyers, then things collapsed politically, and that was sort of it forever, right? Like, it, it can go away very quickly, and I think people need to realize that. It, it can, and, and it's, it's another thing I think about that is, I was just watching a, a video the other day on some, you know, billionaire rock star saying, we want revolution, and then you know, all these middle class kids cheering, just like, in revolution, you would all be dead. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And I, I wrote a piece that probably didn't win me many friends, but it was it was called something like "I love the establishment and you should too." And and, and when, you know the root word of establishment is stability. Yeah. And I know people hate oh, how stodgy the stodgy middle class and the bourgeoisie and the civil service and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I've been in places that didn't have that, and they were freaking nightmares. Like you know some basic 
spine to a society, some basic structure that's there day to day. Maybe it's defective, but just the fact that you know you don't have to worry about um, you know people being dragged out of their homes and, and and slaughtered on a large scale is a huge huge blessing that nobody should underestimate how great it is to have because a lot of uh, our fellow human beings don't have that. Yeah, at at some point I want to like have a meaningful conversation with like one of the many socialists in my you know outlying social and professional networks about this because I just think um more and more I take pride in my very like almost middle-aged belief that all we can do is like tweak the system we have and slowly make it better and maybe if we're really lucky someday we'll be like Denmark or Finland I I just <laughs> I just feel like the more you know about how quickly things can go south, the less of a revolutionary spirit you should have. And it's especially right now, it's such an unsexy view. But I just like, man, are there counterexamples you should have in mind if you think revolution is sort of the way to toward justice? Yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Britain and sort of joke about British politics is the chance of the crowd is, what do we want? Incremental change. When do we want it? in due course <laughs> and i think there's a lot and, you know you, I, I someone else could attack it and say but sometimes you need a dramatic change what about the civil rights act and that's true i mean yeah. you know there, there's a weakness in everything one could say um but you know it, 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 their countries flip and and um you know look at venezuela you know um you know it was a, a pretty stable news or, or look at the other direction colombia which looked like a nightmare 15 years ago. And now, you know, is it's amazing. Like Medellin is an amazing, terrific, vital place. And and in, in, in national happiness surveys, Colombians are usually in the top two or three nations. I mean, things can really change dramatically. And it's really, um, you know, it's a big roll of the dice. Um, and uh, when you have, in a sense, you can think of it as if you're going to gamble, do you want to do that when, um, you know, you're probably more willing to do that when you're desperate. But when a lot of things work well, and it's all the problems we have, a lot of things still work well in American life. I think it's less sensible to take those, you know, really crazy risks and, you know, and hope for the best because you know, we, we often don't get that. Yeah. And I, I think it's that that view is totally compatible with the view that in many ways we're a, you know, a disappointing country that hasn't met its potential. And, and things like, you know, refusing Medicaid expansion, or even simply the fact that we still don't have universal health care, truly, like you can, I don't know, I think there's a way to be appropriately outraged about that without uh, jumping down some revolutionary rabbit hole. Maybe that's the space I'm trying to. Yeah, no, I, I hate that about the United States. Yeah. I, you know, I think ever since healthcare, and, and, and yet I also look is that countries that are a lot like us, Western European countries, Australia, and so on, Japan, have been able to do that in, in the rough political frame that we have. So I, I see like we can do that without issuing into the streets and, you know, and shooting each other, driving out of their homes. It's, it's possible. We haven't done it. It's frustrating. But um, it, it's it's within this whatever, you know, however you classify the United States political system, that, that, is, that is eminently possible and worth fighting for. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have worked in the administration if I didn't believe in that. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we just close on, on sort of a final note about addiction more broadly because i I think it's still just such a misunderstood and stigma shrouded subject are there any myths and misconceptions that you think are still really hindering public understanding of addiction both opioids and and everything else yeah i i think perhaps the biggest one is underestimating how many people recover and have really good lives 
I mean, when someone is actively addicted, it's super salient. You know, whether you see them sleeping in the street or they're, you know, they're high on cocaine and they're aggressive and scary and all that kind of stuff. And it's easy to think, God, that's that's what it's all about. But when someone recovers, they just walk by you on the street and they look like anybody else and you don't track that. That is also part of the story of addiction. Uh, and the fact that there's something like, you know, 20, 25 million Americans who have had a bad substance use problem and are now doing well is really underappreciated. And if we thought about that, it'd be a lot more hopeful whether we are someone who's who's outside that or also those families who are experiencing it, who are pulling their hair out and just wondering, is this ever going to end? Well, um, yes, sometimes, you know, it, it continues. Yes, sometimes people die, but also a lot of times people recover and they become very productive, loving, healthy people and they give a lot back to our society. I wish more people knew that. That, that misconception even extends to sort of individual level things like how likely someone is to get addicted to heroin if they use it once, right? Yes, people also, I mean, that, I mean most drug use, you know, even the drugs that scare people, most people who use them ever are going to be okay. Right. I mean, it, you know, and and um, it's just that the problem is we're just so crappy at judging when that's going to be us, you know. So, it, it and, and of course the the impact of the, the negative effects of being wrong are pretty severe, right? You know, it's kind of you you you, you know, if you have a, a six shot revolver and there's only one bullet, you're probably going to be fine. People will trigger, but if you're wrong, you know, it's it's a catastrophe. Um, but um, yeah, that's another thing worth worth people knowing is that um, um, you know people don't expect. You know, most people are not going to become addicted, and those that do are generally people who are not expecting to. We're just we're just not good at guessing. Um, you know, I mean, very very every once in a while you meet somebody who says, "I knew I was going to end up here," but very it's much more common when people say, "I can't believe that I went from fooling around a little with Vicodin to." Um, doing sex work so I could buy heroin over, you know, there's like, I can't believe this is, this is who I've become, but that's, that's often where people end up. Yeah. Well, on that, uh, very cheerful note. Um, <laughs> no, thank you very much for coming out, Keith. I, this was a, a really enjoyable conversation and, uh, yeah, I'll continue to follow your work and, and send you annoyingly elementary questions when I'm writing about addiction. I'm always happy to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. No matter how the